morning. Before we start the message, um, let us come to um, God in prayer. Father God, as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, we cannot thank you enough for sending Jesus to rescue us by dying on the cross on our behalf. We ask you to fill us with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit and to enable us to wait excitedly and faithfully for Christ's return. All God's people said, Amen. I've entitled this message, The Christian's Race Starts at the Finish Line, for two reasons. Number one, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we have new life in Christ. And number two, because of our new life in Christ, we can run the race knowing what's at the end. So the first three verses talk about the certainty of Christ's coming. It's highlighted in verse 2. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We can see here that Christ's return is certain and sudden. Verses 1 through 3 in this section talk about the certainty of Christ's return. And since it's definitely coming, we then should live with the end in mind. As we heard in Pastor Matt's message last week from 1 Thessalonians 4, the second coming is a definite event, although the time and date are a surprise. For those who have trusted in the finished work of Christ's death on the cross, where the judgment of God against our sin was endured by Christ, our eternal destiny with him is secure. He became our substitute. He suffered and died for our sins on the cross and resurrected from the dead. So just as he certainly resurrected, he will certainly return. Often when I read the Bible, I ask myself, what did I learn and how do I live it? What can we learn from this passage is my destination will dictate my journey. And I pray that we may live for Jesus' second and sudden coming. So the finished work of Christ is the starting point of any Christian's life. Since our eternity is secure, we obey and live for Christ, not the other way around, where we work for our salvation. Said in a different way, because I am saved, I will obey Christ. And because eternity with God has been determined through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I will live my life parallel to my calling. And run the race with that in mind. We can see this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 26, which emphasizes this thought of focusing on the finish line. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. 
but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. We can see that Paul lived with the end in mind. In the secular world, this is referred to as reverse engineering. In his New York Times best-selling book, Decoding Greatness, psychologist Dr. Ron Friedman wrote, I looked at what separates top performers from everyone else, and what I found is that they are not simply relying on talent or practice. They're using a technique that few people have heard of called reverse engineering. Reverse engineering simply means finding the best in the field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. Dr. Friedman continues to write that there's certainly value to brainstorming new ideas, but successful entrepreneurs go about it differently. They work backward to identify a business model hidden within a successful venture. For example, Starbucks and Chipotle both capitalize on the same underlying business model find something that's working somewhere else and import it into your hometown. In the case of Starbucks, Howard Schultz saw the successful espresso bars of Italy and brought them into Seattle. In the case of Chipotle, Steve Els saw the successful Mexican restaurants of San Francisco and brought them to Denver. In looking for hidden patterns, the best entrepreneurs are able to generate new business ideas quickly. In my practice as a family therapist, I use a similar technique to help the people I work with achieve the goals they have in mind. I ask them to imagine that they have accomplished their goals and to write a letter to a friend that is dated a year from the date they're writing the letter. They're to look back at the year that passed first part of the letter talks about the goals that have already been accomplished throughout the year. The second section of the letter describes the obstacles met in achieving the goals. Finally, I have them write what specific and measurable steps they have taken to achieve those goals. Since we're assured of Christ's return, we can look back on our lives and reverse engineer the way we live for his coming. We want to gratefully respond to the loyal and unfailing love of Jesus as he sacrificially gave his life for us even while we were yet sinners, as written in Romans 5.8. One way to help us think through how to live for Christ is to write the letter to Jesus as you imagine yourself standing before him and recount with how you live for him while waiting for his return. Please take a look at the letter you would want to write to Jesus when he comes. And this was passed on as you were coming to the sanctuary. If an exercise such as this is followed through, we can see a better likelihood of having our plans turn into reality. I believe that for change to be effective, it has to be conscious, purposeful, and intentional change. So I'll give you a minute to do this, but you can continue this at, at home. But a sample would be something like this. 
So the first point would be, dear Jesus, and you write the date that you think might be the day of his coming or just guess a date. Dear Jesus, this is how I lived my life while I waited for your second coming. An example would be this. While waiting for your second coming, I discipled the cashier at the supermarket and walked the Christian journey with him. I also intentionally served my spouse. These, the second section, these were the obstacles I encountered. Had a very busy schedule at work and with family. Third, these are the specific and measurable steps I took to overcome those obstacles. I volunteered to do the grocery shopping weekly to help my wife. And I spent time with a cashier sharing the gospel and discipling him during his break. Paul encourages believers to live a Christ-centered life as written in Philippians 1, 9 to 10, while we expect his return. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The second point, verses 4 through 8, is the character and conduct of the Christian. Verse 5 says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. This is our character internally. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, our conduct externally. What we can learn from this passage is that my identity will drive my activity. And I pray that I may live with a sober mind. When I first came to the well, I heard Matt say, remember whose we are. That phrase stuck with me as I felt safe knowing to whom I belong. The verses tell us that we are children of God our identity, therefore, as children of God would be reflected in our identity. I'm sorry, in our activity. The extent to which we understand and appreciate our identity as children of God will reveal the quality of our response to the Father. Interestingly, in the same verse, it also reminds us to remember whose we are not. Paul continues to write that, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Our character, who we are, internally will show in our conduct what we do externally. I once worked with a man who said that his grandchild felt invisible because no one was paying close attention to her. It is not surprising to hear the description of the child's behavior of crouching having her head down and isolating herself. Her identity of feeling invisible manifested in her activity of attempting to hide in public settings. On the other hand, I have come across in my practice of people who have had grandiose thoughts 
of themselves and behave far above what they have accomplished. The discrepancy in conduct and character is what Jesus addressed in the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25 to 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Wine Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. There should be consistency between conduct and character, as indicated in verses 4 through 8, which state that we are children and in the light. We can clearly see how significant we are to our Father in heaven because he sent his Son. More than that, he brought us into a relationship with him and gave us the right to be called children of God. Isn't this a sobering thought of how much we are worth to him? Therefore, shouldn't we conduct ourselves worthy of our calling as excited children waiting expectantly for our rescuer's second coming? So how do we behave while we wait? This is verses 6 through 8, the conduct of Christians. Several places in the New Testament speak of being sober-minded. The term sober-minded literally means free from intoxicating influences. We speak of a person who is not drunk with alcohol or high are high on drugs as being sober. His or her mind is not under the control of a dangerous outside force. More broadly, being sober-minded means that we do not allow ourselves <coughs> to be captivated by any type of influence that would lead us away from sound judgment. The sober-minded individual is not intoxicated figuratively speaking, and is therefore calm under pressure, self-controlled in all areas, and rational. Following verses tell us about Christ's second coming and how we should live sober lives. First Timothy <clears throat> 4 to 1 For the time is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is the second coming of Christ. It reads further, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. The third point is the confidence of the Christian, highlighted in verse 10, 
he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. What can we learn from this passage? My security is dependent on where I put my trust or where I put my loyalty. And I pray that I may live securely and confidently. Understanding salvation as a person and not just a concept makes a huge difference in our eternal perspective and consequently our earthly walk. A mental ascent of receiving Jesus as our savior as a transactional idea will result in a rules-oriented lifestyle. We have got to know Jesus relationally as a God who became a person who went through the painful sacrifice of dying on our behalf and resurrected to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God so that whoever commits himself to the finished work of Christ will share life with him on earth and for all eternity in heaven. Our security and love from the Lord is from here to eternity and can never be broken. We read this in Hebrews 9.27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And may we be found waiting for him. To appreciate and remember what Jesus has done for us, let us try to imagine a letter from Jesus and what he did for us. On the back part of that letter, you can write your name where it says, Dear, in that line. These are the things I went through to rescue you. What do you think Jesus went through just to rescue us and save us? These were the obstacles I had to go through because you and I are worth dying for. And then lastly, these were the things I did to overcome those obstacles. Let me give you a minute and try to imagine how Jesus would write that letter to you based on scripture. And while writing that, let me just remind us that the feeling of certainty and security of our eternal destiny will reflect in our walk. If we are loved because of who we are rather than what we do, we develop confidence. Having this in mind will empower us to live securely. fourth and 
last point is the community of Christians, how we care for each other in our community. Knowing that God is a community being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we then reflect this also by living in community. Verse 11 writes, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. What can we learn from this? My friends will direct my faith. Said in a different way, my crowd will determine my course. And I pray that I may live supportively in community. In a family, we co-create, we co-construct the health or dysfunction of the emotional atmosphere. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're instructed by Paul to encourage and build up one another, as they were already doing. In a healthy home, we advocate for the other person's well-being. And since a family is a system, anything is infectious, which would mean that advocacy is also infectious. This tells us that as one family member becomes other-centered, it will create a ripple effect, and others will also be encouraging that family member who started other-centeredness. It will define the relational climate of that particular family and empower and encourage each other to finish the race. I would suggest that you share these two letters in your community as you encourage one another. And if you are not in a community, you can forward the letter you wrote to info at the well Silver Spring. Dot org, and also join a community. In closing, I'd like us to be reminded that all of us who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus are children of God, and I pray for us to wait expectantly with sober minds, securely, supportively, and faithfully for his coming. First John Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 read, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are, identity. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. At this time, let's prepare ourselves for communion to remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. 
he went through this ultimate sacrifice or sacrificial act of love in order to rescue us and have a relationship with us. When Jesus said that we take the cup with him, he reminds us of the day that he will return. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember the broken body of Christ for us because we're worth dying for. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake.